today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Why should we be baptized? Number one, it's the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was the practice of the early church in Acts chapter 2, after Peter's uh, evangelical message on that day of Pentecost. Uh, The people came to him and said, hey, what do we need to do? And Peter says, you need to repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was a practice of the early church. Just before Christ ascended into heaven to be with his Father, he commanded the disciples to go and make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In today's message, Pastor David teaches us that baptism by immersion is a biblical command. And so as obedient followers of Christ, we should be baptized. Pastor David also teaches us that dedicating a baby to the Lord by the sprinkling of water is not the same as an individual constantly and willingly submitting to Christ's command to be baptized. Now here's Pastor David with part two of today's message, The Focus of the Gospel, from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Although type is used throughout scripture to present that analogy, a foreshadowing, or a picture, one of the things that we need to understand by virtue of the fact that it is an analogy, by virtue of the fact that it's a shadow, you need to understand that types are imperfect symbols of the antitypes. And you get into trouble a lot of times when people try to make every facet of the type fit the antitype. They can't completely or perfectly be compared with the reality or the fulfillment. Vic, if I were to hire someone to come and paint your portrait, and I would hire somebody very good, and they would do an excellent job, what we would see in that portrait would be actually a type. And there may be imperfections of that 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 don't show everything of who you are and everything about you. You are the antitype. So that is the type. You are the antitype in that case. And so in the same way, whenever Bible teachers or would-be Bible teachers go through the word and they see this type or an antitype type of picture, if they try to make everything of the type fit the antitype, then there's where many times we fall into wrong teachings. Not necessarily heretical teachings, although you certainly can go that way, but many times just the wrong teaching, the wrong understanding of what God is trying to say within his word. Now, the same holds true, I believe, here in verse 21. As Peter uses this historical account of of Noah and his family, they become for us then what, church? The type. 
And that clearly speaks of baptism then as being the antitype. And yet I believe that Peter fully recognizes the limitations of even that parallel. The great theological difficulty. We see this difficulty and a problem in the interpretation of it. When either individuals come with a predetermined understanding or belief that one has to be baptized in order to be saved or that baptism is a part of the work of salvation or if someone comes and they don't have a full understanding of the the context of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, as well as the historical setting of Scripture. Now, if you don't have these things, then many times it's easy to be, again, misled in the interpretation and even the application for you. Uh, You come to either one of those frames of thought, either that baptism is used as a processary part of our salvation or that you don't have a full understanding of the biblical or the historical context of it, then you might believe that what Peter is saying here is just as Noah and his family were saved by the waters of the flood, So the ordinance or the act of water baptism saves you, and it's necessary for your salvation or at least a part of your salvation. And the problem is, church, they're wrong on both parts. They begin with a wrong premise. They end up with a wrong conclusion. First of all, let me ask you, did the floodwaters of Noah's day save Noah? No. Absolutely not. And actually, quite the opposite, isn't it? The water was the agent of, of God's wrath that actually purged the world of the filth of the flesh. The waters of the flood destroyed everyone except Noah and his family before, before God allowed them, or as God allowed Noah and his family to pass through these waters. He allowed them to pass through the waters safely because Noah and his family were placed securely in the ark. They weren't saved by the waters, but they were saved through the waters because they had already entered in. They had entered into the safety of God's provision in their life. Noah and his family were saved through the water, but not by the water. And what Peter refers to here is that in the same way as the flood purged the world of sin through that destruction, then water baptism symbolizes that our lives were already purged from sin. Peter speaks about this physical illustration of a spiritual reality because he's very quick to declare right here, right at at that. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Peter well understood that there was no physical ritual that could save us, but only that spiritual reality of a new life in Christ. Our spiritual reality is, is that we come to the waters having already entered in to God's provision. By faith, we've already received Christ. We've already been born again, and we come to those baptismal waters with that already dealt with, 
within our lives. We have already entered into the provision through faith in Christ before we come to those baptismal waters. Our baptism, again, is a special reference to that death of Christ, speaks of our dying to self. And through that act of baptism, as we go completely under the waters, we publicly proclaim that the old man has died. And as we rise from those waters, we affirm that we have already been born again by the Spirit of God. Again, it is symbolic in a physical sense of what's already taken place in a spiritual sense. And again, it's not the physical act of baptism, but using baptism as a picture or as a declaration of that. It's the very thought that the Apostle Paul had when Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Paul isn't speaking about the physical act of getting uh, wet, but Paul is speaking about the spiritual reality of what's taken place in our lives. He speaks about that spiritual death, that spiritual battle, or, or, or burial, and, and yet we, we remain physically alive, don't we? He says, I, I'm, I've died in Christ, but yet physically we're still here. The symbolic representation of our death our burial, and our resurrection in Christ through the ritual or the ceremony or the ordinance of baptism. To help us to understand a little bit better, it might be worthwhile for us to look again at Jewish tradition. And that's where history comes into play in, again, the interpretation and the application of Scripture into our life. Remember, as Peter is writing this, Peter writes this, who is, who is a man who is living uh, as, as, as a born-again Jew. He, he, he was raised as a Jew. He lives in a Jewish culture. He has the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish traditions all as a background to this. Christians were not the only ones, nor were they the first ones, to use baptism as a, as a symbol of, of spiritual renewal. Others had done it in the past. The Jews had for centuries done a very similar thing. For the Jew, the idea of baptism as being symbolic of what had already been done spiritually in their life is well documented. One article says that it's expressed uh, through a well-known passage in Josephus. And Josephus was a Jewish historian of the first century. And Josephus writing actually about John the Baptist. He writes these words that John, in speaking of John the Baptist, he says that the washing, speaking of the baptism, would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away of some sin, but for the purification of the body. Supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. So in other words, it's not the washing on the outside of the fleshly filth, but it's the work that had already been prior done within the spirit. 
We see that same understanding in the New Testament writings about John the Baptist. And in Matthew, we read how John the Baptist was, was baptizing people there at the Jordan River. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they found out about that. And they thought, well, this is where we need to go. This is where the people are. We want to know what's going on. We want to be actively involved with that. And if you remember the story as the Pharisees and the Sadducees came down to be baptized, John the Baptist says, whoa, you brood of vipers. Who warned you about the wrath that's going to come? And then he said, now you go and you do works of righteousness first. Well, was John denying them the ability to get saved? Was he saying, no, you can't get saved yet. You've got to earn your salvation. No, that's not the picture at all. What John was saying is these waters don't do anything if your heart's not changed first. Your heart has to be changed. Repentance needs to come. Faith in the Messiah needs to come first. And then we come to those waters as a symbol of what's already taken place within our lives. For the ancient Jew, one other thing you need to realize. For the ancient Jew, baptism meant immersion, full immersion within their communities, wherever there was a synagogue. They would always have to have what's called a mikvah a baptismal pool. And the size of the baptismal pool had to be sufficient enough for an adult male to be able to completely submerse himself within the waters. And wherever there was a synagogue, they had to have the mikvah. As a matter of fact, today, you can go around Israel and in the ancient ruins, you see the mikvahs everywhere. Even on the top of Masada, that, that, uh, that Roman stronghold, once the Jewish rebels defeated the Roman garrison that was holding Masada, one of the first things that they did was break in and, and build themselves a mikvah there, a baptismal pool. And again, the size of it wasn't for just the pouring of water or the sprinkling of water, but that a, a full-grown adult could get in and completely submerse themselves. And as a convert to Judaism, that ceremonial mikvah was all about signifying that you had already been given a new life of blessings and responsibilities within the Jewish community. And in biblical times, it demonstrated through obedience that a person was already spiritually clean and eligible for the full privileges and the services within the nation of Israel. And the individual was then completely immersed under water. Immersion itself had nothing to do with the salvation of the person. They went through the ceremony because repentance and commitment had already been declared. That's why even today, it's after your repentance from sin, a turning away from sin, followed by that commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that you need to be baptized. We don't do it beforehand. We don't believe in in, in infant baptism here. We believe that this is something that that takes place as as either as a young person makes a commitment to Christ or as an older person makes a commitment to Christ. It's at that point after that commitment to Christ that we baptize. Baptism, I believe, is very clear in Scripture that after you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. And I believe that the word is very clear that that baptism should be by full immersion. Well, why full immersion? What does baptism represent? It represents the fact that we have died. We have died to self. 
And I don't know when the latest funeral that you had gone to was, but usually when the funeral is over and they bring them out to the, the cemetery, now we do a ceremonial kind of a thing of sprinkling a little bit of dirt on the, in the coffin and then we all leave. But what happens? That coffin goes down into the ground and it is completely, completely covered. And see, that's what baptism should symbolize for us. That's why if you've seen our portable baptistry, we, we make comment about the fact it looks like a coffin, okay? And uh, I don't, I'm not sure if we did that on purpose, but I'm glad it turned out that way, okay? Because again, it builds on the symbolism. What's already taken place in my life? I've died to myself. I bury, I'm buried in those waters. I rise there, and just as the scripture says, I've risen in that newness of life. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet it's not me that lives, but Christ lives in me. Why should we be baptized, number one? It's the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was the practice of the early church in Acts chapter 2 after Peter's uh, evangelical message on that day of Pentecost. Uh, the people came to him and said, hey, what do we need to do? And Peter says, you need to repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was a practice of the early church. We see that all throughout the book of Acts. And it's also, I believe, a part of our public confession of our faith in Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says absolutely nothing about baptism here. He's speaking here about what needs to take place. Confession and belief, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in, on him will not be put to shame. I believe that baptism becomes a very important part of that public confession of your faith. It's the very beginning thing that an individual can do when they are born again to come and get baptized. And in that very ritual, the ceremony or the ordinance of baptism, they declare, you know what? I've given my heart and life to Christ. And these waters here show in, 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 in a very physical sense what's taken place in my spirit. Peter finishes up this whole thought in this matter when in verse 22, in speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The assurance that you and I have as believers is the very present power and authority of Jesus Christ. His current position is that of authority and power over all creation. Ephesians tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21 and following, that Jesus has been placed far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he, speaking of God, and God put all things under his, under Jesus' feet. 
and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And just as Peter says here, he has gone to heaven. He's at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. That is the place and that is authority of our Lord Jesus. What a great champion we have who is powerful over all of creation. The second thing we have is the hope that we have as believers. The hope that we have is in the continuous and the active work of Christ on our behalf. Again, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 39. He says, it's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen and who is even at the right hand of God, just as Peter tells us here. But Paul goes on to say, who also makes intercession for us. He's interceding on our behalf before the Father. And in my mind, I just kind of imagine these things. That conversation between the Son and the Father. Where the Son says, you see this one? Dad, I died for him. My blood covers his sin. Oh, you see her situation, Father? My, I, I've, I've given my life for her. Her debt's been paid totally. Ever interceding on our behalf. What a great champion we have. What a great king we have. What a great intercessor that we have. He's an intercessor. He's, he's like, as the book of Hebrews says, that, that high priest that, that knows our weaknesses. He knows our frame. Jesus, who was tempted in everything just as we were, and yet he was without sin, is the one who's interceding for you and I. So the struggles that we have in the flesh and in the spirit, the struggles we have within this fallen world, Jesus is very acquainted of those things, and he's ever interceding to the Father on our behalf. Christ is our assurance in his might, his power, and his authority over all of creation. He is our hope because we know that he is ever interceding on our behalf. And folks, ritual and ceremony, they're okay, they're fine, as long as our trust is only in Christ and in Christ alone. Remember the focus of this passage, and I told you at the end we'd get to that. The focus of the gospel. The focus of this passage shouldn't be on the theological difficulties, even though we've spent two weeks looking at those things to try and help us all understand them. The focus really shouldn't be on the minutiae of types even or the allegories. I believe that the focus of this passage for us needs to be on that overall theme of the sufficiency of Christ on our present covering that's found only in him and our future hope that's placed totally in him. Listen as I read it one more time in closing. Now that we've taken all of last week and all of this week and we've poured into it, listen to it one more time. In verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once that divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. 
There's also an antitype which now saves baptism. Oh, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. What a blessing is ours, amen? come to the end of our time with you today on The Open Word. You don't have to wait to hear more from Pastor David Landry. In fact, Pastor David's here to tell you more. Thanks, Chris. The Open Word has an archive of previous messages ready to be listened to, downloaded, and shared at theopenword.com. Simply click on the teachings link at the top of the page. You can also take The Open Word with you as you go by subscribing to our podcasts. This can be done through our website or by searching for The Open Word on iTunes. By subscribing, you'll have sound biblical teachings with you anytime and anywhere. Thanks, Pastor David. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast as well. As soon as we post a new message from The Open Word, you'll receive a notification. This way, you'll never miss an update. While you're on our website, you can learn more about what we believe as a ministry as well as find out ways to support us. One way is through prayer, something we're always grateful for. We need to make sure we're focusing first on Jesus, then on what we're creating. We want every edition of The Open Word to come from the Savior, not from us. Your prayers for us help us do this. Would you also pray for the listeners of The Open Word? Pray that hearts and ears would be open to Jesus and that the gospel will continue to spread throughout the earth. Thanks for praying and thanks for tuning in today to The Open Word.